Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 211 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Kat Moon about the design thinking mindset and what's holding up innovation in the law. Today's podcast is brought to you by Podium, Gusto, LawPay, and Case Text. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So it is about 10 years ago this very week that you and I got together <laughs> for a networking lunch at a local pizza joint. To catch True. up after yeah. a few years of not having been in touch after law school. And I said, hey, that lawyerist.com blog you've been writing as a hobby is pretty cool. And you've got hundreds of readers who are regularly Actually, checking I think it. that's overstating it. I think <laughs> it was more than 100 readers. <laughs> and I said, that's really fun. Have you ever tried to do anything with it? And you were like, I don't know, not really. No. Nope. I said, should we do that? <laughs> and it is approximately two weeks later, 10 years ago, yep. that we, this we thing became the a thing. Our checks and yeah. our formation documents and off we go. Which That's is amazing. To, which is to say, here comes our 10-year anniversary. <laughs> That's so cool. We are going to be doing some things to try and let people know and celebrate our anniversary. And we're not all that great at patting ourselves on the back, I don't think, but... Uh, we're going to do a little bit of that. But holy shit, we've been doing this for a really yeah, I can't. long time. That's awesome. I love that we've been doing it for 10 years. I can't believe this is still my job. It's very cool. And I guess what I'm most excited about, though, is we've built lawyers to the point where I think we can have the impact with our community as our partners on the legal industry that we always talked about wanting to have. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's great. So if we do this for 10 more years, I'm going to be gray. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I mean, we'll be talking about retiring from this job, huh? which is crazy. So, you know, sing happy birthday to us on Twitter or something. That'd be, that's awesome. Can you sing on Twitter? Uh, you can take a video, go live on Twitter and sing happy birthday right. to us. Yeah, I hope some people do that. <laughs> In the meantime, we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Claude Duclue from LaPay and then my conversation with Cat Moon. Hi, this is Claude Duclue. I'm a 42-year lawyer, and I practice as a solo small firm the last 28 years. I've probably given three or 400 CLE speeches. I've been heavily involved in bar activities, and I've concentrated on law office management. I know that most lawyers ignore how important it is to know the mechanics of running a law firm. So let me talk about this. And I've been on so many boards and done so many budgets that I know that most businesses factor in some loss of things that they won't collect on. Now, with small firms, a really good collection rate is over 90%. But I looked back at mine and it was 97%. And I think I know why. First of all, you need to make sure that you are using the skills that will get you paid and what behaviors and habits and skills will maximize those collections. The first and most important thing that they never teach you in law school is how to interview the client. The bottom line of any client interview is that when you sign up that client, you and the client should be comfortable and confident with the integrity of the other party. In other words, you know what to expect from that client and that client knows what you can and can't do and what your expectations are of that client in the way of cooperation, what they'll have to do and what they can do to help their own case. And then during the case, the 
way you build that client relationship is to actively communicate everything. Actively, you don't blame judges, you don't blame secretaries, you don't blame other people. You take responsibility and you always communicate actively and correctly with the client and correct any misimpressions that the client has halfway during the case. But the most important thing that lawyers really ignore is billing that. Now, look, most of us uh, are doing this for a living, but we seem to ignore those habits on billing that will get you paid. First of all, carefully crafting the bill and make sure you do it every single day. Save those time entries daily. And in my really long speech that I give, one of the things I give you as a tip is you always look at your outgoing emails because you have a very, very busy day if your practice is like mine. I'm a board certified in both civil trial and civil appellate law with a very wide practice that depended on real clients reaching into those real client pockets and paying me. So I was very careful about making sure I recorded my time every single day and I used the things at my disposal, including my outgoing email, to remind me what I did that day. Uh, and then always, always get your bill out on a set schedule. On mine, I know, like, actually, as I'm recording this, it's the first day of a month. So yesterday by 3 p.m., my longtime legal assistant puts out the rough draft bills on my desk. By 3.30, I correct them, and she puts in the, all the additional time, corrections, errors, and additions, and then they go out on the first day of the month all the time, all the time. I call it, I teasingly call it a mortal sin not to get those bills out. Because if you don't get your bills out at the beginning of the month or at a set time of month, the meta communication with your own client is, eh, I'm so rich I don't need to get paid. I'm way too busy to bill you. No, I want my clients to know that I depend. Here's your bill. It makes sense. It explains what I did. You remember what I did because it's a very recent bill and they can pay it. Now, the other thing that you need to do, and I tried this every way during my 27 years in solo and small practice, I sent return addressed envelopes, then I've sent return addressed stamped envelopes, but nothing affected my practice more positively than giving my clients the opportunity to pay with a credit card. Now, like most lawyers, I think, ooh, gosh, what am I, a bartender now? I'm taking credit cards. But it has meant the biggest, it just turbocharged my collections. By now, because I'm in Austin, Texas, and I can send my stuff out by email, and you can too, and at least half my clients want to get an email bill, I can send it with a hyperlink to a payment page. It looks like a doctor's office, and they can do it. And I, I will tell you, my bills are about to go out in the next hour, and by 5 p.m. this afternoon. If I were a wagering man, I'd have five or $6,000 in my account that shows that these people have paid with a credit card. So first of all, excellent billing app. It's excellent time entries. Don't do stupid things like bill people for, you know, paper or office supplies or binding or things like that. And just make it easy for that client to pay you. Vibrant communication, great interviewing skills, and really good billing habits are what you need to have a successful office. For me, that turned into a 97% collection rate. And I think the same habits that you employ in your office can do that for you. I'm always here and available at Claude at LawPay as the their director of communications to give you forms or anything else you think might help you. And I really expect and hope that I can help all of you out there listening to this podcast. And if I'll hand it back to Sam, I think we have some ebook available too, don't we, Sam? Yep. Listeners, if you're interested, you can get the ebook Getting Paid in 2019 available at lawpay.com slash lawyerist podcast. Thanks, Claude. Thanks very much, Sam.
Hi, I am Kat Moon and I'm a lawyer and I teach law students at Vanderbilt Law School and I'm the director of innovation design for the law school as well. And I do a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> yeah, you have an independent business, uh, Ledger Law, right? So yes, I have been working with a whole range of folks actually and kind of getting a handle on the blockchain space, but I will be perfectly frank with you there. My work at Vanderbilt has really started consuming so much of my bandwidth that I have been connecting people with other people to help in the blockchain space. So Ledger Law has actually kind of become this connection point, which is awesome as well. Yeah. And you have legal problem solving as well, .org, I believe, which yeah. is, is that a business or just a place to store thoughts or a little bit of both? Yeah. So I, I created the site really just to share how I'm approaching teaching human-centered design at Vanderbilt. Cool. And so it's grown into, a, I think, a larger resource and has inspired, frankly, a project that I'm working on with some of my students to create a more substantial resource for folks who are interested in bringing human-centered design into the law school curriculum in a broader way. I frequently get queries from folks across the country in different law schools asking if I can help them bring human-centered design into the curriculum. And Makes sense. so I'm trying to, to do that in a broader way. Um, I can't, I haven't figured out how to clone myself yet. So um, <laughs> <laughs> this will be a small way. And I do independently work with folks really across the legal spectrum to use the tools, methods, and mindsets of human-centered design to kind of make their little corner of the law universe better. And that spans from in-house legal departments at global financial institutions to, for instance, the Tennessee um, Administrative Office of the Courts Pro Bono Committee. I'm going to be working with them to create a design sprint experience for folks in the in the local pro bono community here. And I'll be kicking off the design sprint for the second Women of Legal Tech Conference, cool. which happens the Wednesday before Tech Show kicks off in Chicago. So, yeah, I, I, what I love most about my work with innovation, which most often manifests itself with the design tools, but not always. But what I love about that work is it really gives me this connection into so many people across the spectrum that we call the legal industry. And that is so incredibly gratifying and frankly, so much fun for me. So I'm curious, how do you come to design? I mean, you have a JD, you're a lawyer. How do you justify the work you put into design? And I'm not asking that. I don't mean to ask that in like a challenging way, but I think about that myself. Like <laughs> I dare you be a designer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. I mean, uh, so many designers have various backgrounds, which is totally fair and fine. But what makes you somebody that can talk about design? First, I think just part of the essence of my being, this deep interest in the human aesthetic. Hmm. And so I've always been really deeply interested in design, even before I could put that label on it. And um, a, a number of years ago, when I discovered the VIA character strengths assessment, um, I the first time I did the assessment, my top character strength, and this is this grows out of the positive psychology movement at the University of Pennsylvania with Martin Seligman. And the first time I did the assessment, my top strength was appreciation of beauty and excellence. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that 
actually makes sense. And, and I, I take that assessment at least annually because I use it with my students. And that's always like the other strengths kind of, there's a little shifting that happens periodically, but that one's always the first. So I think that I initially was drawn to design from a very aesthetic perspective. Hmm. It makes sense. Yeah. And in my work as a lawyer, which really kind of had nothing to do with the aesthetic perspective, except in, I would say probably around 2008, 2010, I started doing a lot of work with creative professionals uh, from a legal work for creative professionals. Gotcha. Yeah. And I just was really taken with like how beautiful their documents were. And I'd always felt that my documents were ugly. Like (laughs) (laughs) most legal documents aren't really something to look at. (laughs) Like, and I will also back up and preface it to say that before I went to law school, I studied communication. I have an undergraduate and graduate degree in communication. And so the form and function of words has always been something I've really been very curious and passionate about. So these things kind of came together initially in visual design for me. I'm like, wow, we can we can actually make our written communication much more aesthetically pleasing. And guess what happens when we do that? We actually understand it better. We become better communicators. And so I started working with some of my creative clients to improve my communication with clients, both visually and in a whole lot of other ways. And so I started learning from them. And that was my first introduction, I think, formally to design. And I had one particular client that it was an agency that actually used the human-centered design method in their work. And so I was exposed to that through them. And at the same time, I was also exposed to Agile Software Development and Kanban with another client, a software company. And so all of these things were converging eight to 10 years ago for me. And I realized that these all represented incredible powerful tools for legal professionals and really just opened my eyes and opened opportunities for me in my own work. So I spent probably a solid year completely redesigning how I worked and how I delivered that work to clients. Hmm as a result of that exposure to these things. And it was a very organic thing. I never sat down and said, okay, this is the year I'm going to redesign. I just started implementing and experimenting. And so that was the metamorphosis point, I think, for me. And ever since then, it's really been integral to how I approach all of my work. I mean, part of why I ask is because a friend of mine asked the other day on Twitter, you know, okay, so my interest in design has been peaked. What do I do to actually learn how to apply this in law practice. Yeah. yeah. And so um, I'm wondering, like, how do you take that germ of interest and then turn it into something where you aren't just dabbling, but you're actually trying to use it in the way you do it? Because I think Susskind is the one who pointed out that lawyers think they can learn any skill in, in a weekend. Um, and, I, and I'm and i a little self-conscious about anything I try to do that isn't just worth sitting down and hacking out legal documents as a result of that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I can tell you about the approach I take with my students. Yeah. I think um, fundamentally the foundation in my experience for applying design to legal Right. And we we can define that in a few different ways. But let's just say that broadly really starts with simply jumping in and understanding what we're talking about first when we talk about design and, you know, what what is the process? What are the methods? What are the tools? And frankly, I think you start first with the mindsets. To me, the mindsets are foundational 
without them, none of the other stuff works. And so... And those mindsets are... The mindsets, well, there are a number of mindsets. I can talk about the core mindsets. <laughs> sure. I think are most relevant and to me, the mother of all mindsets is curiosity. I think a number of others actually come sort of underneath the curiosity umbrella. And by curiosity, I mean primarily intellectual curiosity. I take it a step right. further and describe it as humble curiosity. I, and I think that approach is important with lawyers because um, we are trained to walk into the room and be the smartest person. And, and you know, in our ethics... Or at rules, least to think of ourselves that way. <laughs> uh, yeah. And soon our ethics rules kind of expect the same thing of us. Like, we've got to get this right. We, you know, um, so it's a mindset shift to say, you know what? It is not possible for me to know everything I need to know. Mm -hmm. And the only way I can do my job really, really well is to be genuinely, humbly curious. So curiosity, of course, empathy is core. I frankly don't think you can be genuinely empathetic unless you're also curious, um, because unless right. you unless you are curious, then you're curious not. about what other people think. Exactly. <laughs> and I will say too, when I talk about empathy, there are different forms of empathy, and the form of empathy that really is at the core of design principles is the form that requires you to put yourself in the shoes of another person and see the world from their perspective. Mm -hmm. I do believe that there is clearly an emotional understanding element to empathy. However, I really caution people to not conflate feeling what someone feels with seeing the world from their place, from seeing the world from, you know, in their shoes. Right. It's the empathy that allows you to change your perspective, yes, not just yeah. to understand emotional. Yes. And, and I think yeah. that understanding and recognizing emotion is critical, but I heed that. I, you know, I tell people to heed that because frankly, bearing the emotional weight of our clients is a problem for lawyers. Yeah. It's counterproductive. <laughs> yes. And so when I, you know, when I start talking about empathy, they're just like, well, that, that would crush me. I can't feel everything my clients feel. And so that's why I say this is, we're not talking about feeling everything someone else feels. It really is. How can you see through their eyes and understand their position and their perspective? And it sounds so obvious. And well, of course I see things from my client's perspective. Well, you know, yeah, most um, lawyers think they do, but they mean something different by that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and they see, you know, filtered through the lawyer's eyes. And I, and I think so it is it is a skill. It is something all of us can do, but it takes great intention and it takes practice. And so empathy is key. Um, experimentation is critical. And, and with experimentation comes an understanding that um, an experiment means we don't know the outcome. Right. Um, if we if we know the outcome, it's not an experiment. And the reason why we experiment is because part, you know, one of the kind of key steps in the human centered design process, what is often referred to as quote design thinking is prototyping. And that is, you know, coming up with a proposed solution and putting it out into the world and seeing if it sticks and iterating and kind of continuously improving. And so the the idea, the mindset that really, frankly, all we are ever doing is experimenting. It's really a liberating mindset and not one to be taken lightly. It doesn't mean that we don't try hard to have a really solid hypothesis and really focus in on 
launching an experiment that is more likely to succeed than fail. But the second part of that is understanding that the incredible value we get out of running the experiment and learning from what doesn't work. And so it is instead embracing the lessons to be learned from what doesn't work and using that to do better going forward. And I'd like to frame it that way instead of the often, um, I'm doing air quotes right now, like (laughs) don't have a fear of failure. I don't think we really need to focus on failure as much as just really paying attention to what works and what doesn't and learning from that. I think lawyers are in this interesting place where we challenge every authority except other lawyers almost. Right. Like we won't believe anything a scientist says to us. We're going to challenge the hell out of it. But if another lawyer hands us a template, we're going to use it without question. And in a way, I think design thinking is just taking that same mindset and applying it to the way we practice law which we're otherwise unwilling to do. Yes, yes. And what you just shared is a great segue into another mindset, which is also foundational and critical. And that is the mindset of radical collaboration. And Mm. that is acknowledging that one way of thinking and one way of problem solving will never, ever produce the best outcome. It just will not. And this is a scientific fact. More and more data show that when you gather together a group of diverse, cognitively diverse problem solvers, you get to a better outcome more quickly. And so let's think about that. Put all lawyers around the table. Well, right now, every single one of those people was trained essentially in exactly the same way. Right problem solving. Add a few different types of problem solvers to the table. Add a designer, add a data analyst, um, add a cognitive psychologist. And make sure they're not all white guys. Oh yeah. Well, that's a whole whole (laughs) other conversation. But yes, so diversity of all stripes, frankly, because who we are, our gender, our sexual orientation, our social and economic background absolutely inform who we are and how we solve problems in those types of diversity are equally important. And so the concept of radical collaboration is that you acknowledge it takes this village to get to the good stuff. Right. And then another mindset, and I'll stop after this one, <laughs> um, is optimism. And optimism, you know, really is just the goal of like, you are empowered to find an answer. You're empowered to find a good answer. There is a solution and, you know, I can contribute to finding it. And so that, that is the mindset with which you approach all of these really big, hairy problems. And, you know, we know from Dr. Larry Richards' research on the lawyer brain that lawyers are skeptical. Now, that's not necessarily the opposite of optimism or optimistic, but it definitely is at a different point on the scale. And so I think if you look closely at many of the mindsets I've just identified, they actually are not, we don't generally score high in those things. Mm-hmm. We are autonomous. We are not resilient. And by not resilient, I mean we are not good at experimenting and learning from what didn't go well. To wit, um, lawyers never ask for feedback from clients. Right. And because they, and I do not believe it's because we don't care. I do not believe that. Right. I think most of us care deeply about how we serve our clients and want to do it very, very well. Um, But we're not resilient. And you make yourself very vulnerable when you ask for that feedback. And so 
Yeah. Although I think another way to look at, in the same way that lawyers challenge every authority, but those that they've received from other lawyers, we use a sort of design thinking process to solve legal problems. We just don't apply that same process to non-legal problems. Like you try to understand the issue in as many different ways as you can. You go out and you research the hell out of it. You come up with different paths to get to the outcome that you need for your client. You're very optimistic that you can win or at least achieve a, a good resolution. I mean, yeah. like we do this when it comes yeah. to solving legal problems. We just don't take the same time to map that out when it comes to you know, how can I improve my client's onboarding experience when they hire my firm? Yes, I think I, I have a few thoughts in response <laughs> to that. So one, in terms of actually solving legal problems, I do think a lot tracks with a design thinking approach. Absolutely. I think where often we miss an opportunity, and again, this is, this is in doing legal work, right? This is yep. in um, our technical application of what we are proficient in. I think we often don't expand what we consider relevant outside of this legal mindset. And, and I think that that is evidenced by kind of a constant chorus. And I'm referring now to a lot in the big law echo chamber, but I don't think it's restricted to that. A constant chorus that, you know, outside counsel often are so focused on the legal issues that they miss the bigger, larger business issues within which the legal issues exist. And so I point that out because I take this approach with my students. My course is called legal problem solving. And even though it really, we do look primarily at how do we improve legal services delivery? We also look at how do we do better at solving our clients' legal problems like that technical proficiency. Mm -hmm. And in part of framing that is your clients come to you with problems or challenges or opportunities. And none of those things are strictly legal in nature. Right. There may or may not be a legal element, frankly, to any or all of those things. And so a lawyer's ability to really dig a little bit deeper and expand sort of what is that universe of relevant and possible, um, I think that a simple mindset shift. And again, I don't mean to suggest that a lot of lawyers don't already do this. I'm making very broad generalizations, but there's enough pushback and, you know, kind of conversation right out there that suggests that we could do better with that. So I would say there's, you know, there's room for growth in both places. I definitely think there's a lot of room for growth in how we actually serve clients like that delivery piece. Clearly. Um, Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, to paraphrase maybe, and hopefully I'm not butchering it. I, I think what you're saying is that, you know, one, one thing that you can do when a client brings you a problem is to isolate the legal exam question and then hit the books and solve it by litigation or negotiation or whatever. And that's only one way to solve the problem. And instead, there's actually a whole bunch of other ways that you could potentially solve that problem for that business and solve the entire problem, not just the legal exam question buried in it. And that thinking about things with a a more designy approach to it um, will help you solve your client's actual problems, not just the legal exam question. Absolutely. We need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll keep talking about this. And I'm particularly interested in starting to talk about what can we do to help the profession make this shift in mindset. So we'll be right back. Legal research is too expensive, hard to use, and time-consuming. It doesn't have to be. With Case Text, you can save $2,000 and 210 hours on legal research this year. Case Text has unique artificial intelligence technology that does a lot of the research for you. 
Just drag and drop a complaint or brief and you'll quickly find cases on the same facts, legal issues, and jurisdiction. CaseText is fast, well-designed, and comprehensive, and it's very affordable. Go to casetext.com slash lawyerist to get CaseText for $55 a month. CaseText is modern legal research trusted by over 3,000 small firms and 40 firms in the AmLaw 200. Go to casetext.com slash lawyerist to get started. If you have a small business or know someone who does, you probably know that small business owners wear a lot of hats, and some of those hats are totally great. But some, like filing taxes and running payroll, for example, are not so great. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and HR easy for small businesses. Fast, simple payroll processing, benefits, and expert HR support all in one place. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes so you don't have to worry about it. Plus, they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for your team. Those old-school, clunky payroll providers just weren't built for the way modern small businesses work. But Gusto is, so let them wear one of your many hats. You have better things to do. Listeners get three months free when they run their first payroll. Try a demo and see for yourself at gusto.com lawyerist. That's gusto.com lawyerist. In business, reputation is everything. And while online reviews can make or break you, your best clients probably aren't showing up. And that's too bad, because if they did, you'd have more clients, more referrals, and be the top-rated law firm in your area. If you're tired of waiting for reviews to trickle in, you have a choice. Either keep waiting or get proactive with Podium. Podium helps you get more reviews on the sites that matter most. Use their messaging platform to give friendly reminders while sending clients straight to the review sites that you care about the most. With Podium's built-in analytics, you can set goals, monitor progress, and incentivize your team to reach out to more clients. Become the number one choice online. Visit podium.com slash lawyerist to save 10% when you start. That's podium.com slash lawyerist to get started and save 10%. Okay, we're back. So Kat, we've talked about mindsets and the design thinking process, at least cursorily. And, but what I'm curious about is like, so you've been teaching this at law school and you've been working with lawyers for a while now. What is it going to take to make the profession or to help the profession or spark an epiphany that will get the profession to start solving problems in the way that we've been talking about it, rather than just hitting the books and solving the legal question in the traditional way? Yeah, I think fundamentally is awareness. And that's on two levels. So awareness, and then I think change happens, frankly, you know, one law student at a time, one lawyer at a time. And hopefully there is a domino effect and things can shift a little more quickly. But, you know, in my experience, again, uh, working specifically with law students, I start by helping them gain self-awareness so that they understand that they can level set. Like, here's where I am. Here are the tools I have. This is what I've been taught. Here's how I approach things. And then we talk about other other ways to do things, right? I introduce additional tools that supplement and complement. And we, you know, I really take that approach at a very individual kind of human level. I will say when moving out into the general lawyer population, fundamentally, a lot of folks just don't even know that these tools exist. Like it's just not on their radar. And that that's for a whole host of reasons. I mean, I practiced law for 20 years. I had partners and I will tell you that our primary focus more often than not was, you know, doing our work so that we could keep the lights on in the law firm (laughs) (laughs) and pay ourselves and pay our employees and serve our clients well. And so, you know, were there periods of time in my practice where, you know, my head was down doing my work and I was not out 
trying to figure out how I could do better or be better, but I was just trying to really keep my head above water. And I think while I do believe strongly that as professionals, we owe a duty to ourselves and certainly to our clients to stay abreast, to use ABA language, of ways of working, not just technology, but of ways of working that can help us do better. You know, let's be really realistic and practical. That's a big challenge for a lot of people. So I think to put it all on lawyers to just kind of be curious out of the gate and be constantly looking for how to be better, that's not practical. So I think building awareness, and this is why I'm talking to you, Sam. That's <laughs> <laughs> what we're all about. <laughs> yeah, it is the opportunity to, you know, share my experience and all that I know that works with people who maybe they listen to this podcast and they're like, ah, that sounds interesting. I think I'll dig a little deeper. But for that moment of intersection, there would be no movement, right? So I think we go from creating that moment of awareness and how do we shift that into movement, into action? Well, and I guess one of the questions I have is like, how do you prepare law students for they're going to go out into the profession and run headlong into a brick wall that <laughs> is a partner? <laughs> I mean, for real, right? Like, you're going to teach them all of these. You're going to open their minds, teach them how to design, um, how to approach problem solving differently. Um, and they're going to run out in the world and run headlong into a brick wall. And I, I, I guess I kind of wonder, like, I, I know we've talked to, with Jordan Furlong about he's kind of pessimistic, I think, about yeah. the ability of existing firms to adapt because there's no, there really isn't much pressure on them to change. Right. Um, there's no willpower inside of them to change. And I sometimes feel like the answer is just to say, fuck it and make and make your own firm. And I mean, do you think that's what it takes or do you think you can effectively, you know, sort of seed the practice of law with your agents of change from your program? Oh, I have all the thoughts, Sam. <laughs> I want to hear them. <laughs> I'm just going to start. So first, I'm going to say that um, every morning I wake up, I read some poetry <laughs> and I make the decision very intentionally to be optimistic today. Yeah. Because I will tell you, I've been trying to make law better for over 20 years now, and I'm tired. And so every morning I have to make the decision to be optimistic that change in the right direction is possible. And that is the one thing that keeps me going. And, and I see it every day. I see a little seed of proof <laughs> that new growth is possible. So that keeps me going. I, I really am optimistic. And just, I think on a very practical level, we're going to have to see this happen in multiple places. Yeah. Can, you know, a thousand lawyer firm shift? I mean, uh, you know, over the weekend, there's, I won't name names, but you can go on Twitter and look in my feed and you will see that I commented on someone who shared a, a tweet about Oric that at Oric there are no quote non-lawyers. Everyone is an equal professional, whether you are a JD or a technologist. And I'm just like, that is such bullshit. <laughs> like, I would love to poll your thousand lawyers at Oric and, and see how, you know, and someone chimed in, well, that's, you know, blah. Anyhow, you can read the tweets. But <laughs> my point is that um, for a real cultural shift to happen, like that is very deep and wide. And so I think I share Jordan's pessimism that we're going to see some kind of radical shift in how really big firms operate anytime really soon. And I mentioned the, um, the, the quote, non-lawyer label, because 
that mindset is antithetical to radical collaboration. Yeah, it just is. And so if that's your mindset, which is the mindset of a lot of lawyers, then you, you are not going to, you're not going to be able to function in this design world. How do you talk about it? Cause like, I totally get that. I'm bought into that, but I still think that there is a meaningful distinction between lawyers and non-lawyers. And I don't really know how else to talk about it when it is relevant. Yeah, no, I don't have a good answer for that one. <laughs> I really, I really don't like I'm, you know, I think, you know, we are lawyers. We are trained. We have JDs. A lot of us take and pass a bar exam. Not everyone, um, take it or pass it. Um, but still a JD. So it is a, it is a distinction that exists in the world, I think for valid reasons. Um, I suppose if it's the only distinction you draw, that's a problem. I, I think what it, for my, in my observation and experience, what it represents is this false dichotomy of we can help and everyone else cannot. And Or, or the best they can do is support. Yes. Yes. And I think that this, so there's this, this very black and white line that cannot be crossed. I think this is fundamental to our incapacity and we do have an incapacity to really move the needle in creating more access to justice. And going back to another point that was beautifully made on Twitter earlier today or yesterday, that there is a big difference between creating access to legal services and creating access to justice. Right. And we shouldn't conflate the two. And right now, this false dichotomy between lawyer and non-lawyer is we are the access to legal services. And that category is the category we must aim to put everything into. And we will never, ever, ever be enough to help everyone who needs help if that is the mindset we move forward with. And... So yeah, that's, that's definitely going to shift. And I feel like we've drifted away from where we started. So well, right. Me- There's a whole tangent there on, <laughs> on my, I have a whole soapbox on access to justice, not in access to law and lawyers and courts. And so maybe we should just head away <laughs> from that. Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, it sounds like some of the work is sort of the gradual accumulation of brains that can think in alternative ways within existing institutions and firms and and, yeah. um, and out there, but a fair amount of it also has to be people going out and trying to start a new Absolutely. model of how to practice law so that there are examples of other ways to do it. Absolutely. I think that folks who are passionate and fearless must go forward and make new things. And frankly, I think that what is going to shake up the incumbents the most quickly is for more and more of the really smart, passionate people to go outside of the incumbents and make new things. I mean, we both know Patrick Pallas, whose firm is trying to solve problems that most small personal injury and work comp firms, the problems that that Patrick is trying to solve haven't even occurred to most firms. Yep. Um, Or like I had, I recently had Natalie Worsfold from Countertax up in Canada on the podcast to talk about their new risk assessment software program that is such a change that a friend of mine who works at a very large corporation's legal department was like, oh my God, I wish we had stores in Canada so that I could hire them and have the kinds of conversations they're having with their clients instead of the stupid conversations (laughs) I'm having with my outside counsel. I mean, like those kinds of examples are people start like clamoring for their business. And I think that will happen more and more. Yeah. And I will all give you another example. So, um, I launched the poly Institute in 2019 and poly stands for program on law and innovation. And that's the JD program here at Vanderbilt, the umbrella under which all of my courses fall. 
And so we've just started offering that curriculum to practicing legal professionals, not limited to JDs, by the way. Mm -hmm. And so we had our first immersion workshop this past weekend in legal project management. And one of the women who attended is um, a partner in a firm here in Middle Tennessee, and they provide elder law services, and they are a holistic firm. And so they do exactly what I said about not looking at your clients' problems as legal problems, but looking holistically at the problems and challenges faced. And so how do you build a service model that serves all of those challenges holistically? So they have built that model for aging people to help them through that process to plan or to deal with problems when they happen. And so it is a really unique model. Um, And she said, because of course, as part of our conversation in the workshop, we're talking about the really rather terrible state of mental wellness across the legal professional, the lawyer population. And she, she looked at me and she said, you know, I really have trouble relating to that. She said, we're, we're happy lawyers. Yeah. We are happy. We don't work that hard. I mean, we work hard for our clients, but she's like, I go home at five or six and we're happy in the work we do. And so, you know, I think that, and that was a very concerted effort on their part. And I will share another interesting piece of their challenge is that they've actually created a consulting arm because their model has all these professionals involved they provide mental health services. They have a registered nurse. It's um, very holistic, as I said. Well, of course, those they're trying to solve the problem of end of life, not just exactly. drafting a will. Exactly. But those other professionals, the other disciplines can't own the law firm, right? So they've created mm-hmm. a separate entity and are doing work in a different way so that those other professionals can actually be equity owners. And so it's a you know, really interesting approach. Here's, here's what I observe, and this is how I view myself. I think those of us who have accepted the mission of really making law better must be like water. And we must flow through the cracks. We must go around the barriers. We must recognize that sometimes we will be a drop hitting a stone for a thousand years before something changes. But sometimes when we come together, like when a lot of us come together and create a force, we become, we become a hurricane. And we change the landscape very quickly. And so, uh, you know, there's a huge spectrum there. But if we if we keep that in mind, that no matter how small and no matter where that water can find a way, then I think we will continue to move forward. I think that's a lovely place to end it. So I'm going to end it right there. Thank you so much, Kat. Thank you. This has been awesome. Sure to catch next week's episode of the Lawyerist podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. Lawyerist podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Oh, 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 o